brought the coffee to the table. We took a sip and it just was terrible. You know, it was just awful stuff. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we kept talking and instead of talking about other ideas, we started talking about coffee, you know, well, does Seattle have to put up with this? You know, do we have to keep drinking bad coffee? This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. Thanks for doing this again, Zev. I do appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's part of my ammo. <laughs> I'm trying to help entrepreneurs. 100%. Well, we were just talking about the, you know, the, the frames of your glasses and how that, that was an interesting story in Chile. And it kind of brings light, you know, the question that I think a lot of people listening uh, are wondering, which is, you know, let's fast forward back. It's 1971 to set the context. Um, you're with two other buddies in a restaurant and stuff happens. I want to obviously, I want to let you say the story, but this leads to starting, you know, the coffee company or as we know it today, Starbucks. So I'm curious, first of all, how did this whole thing come about? This love and fascination for Well, coffee? my buddies, my buddies who are uh, Gordon Bowker and Jerry Baldwin and I, we were 26, 27 years old at the time. <clears throat> And this was another another era, not quite as far back as the dinosaurs, but 1971. And things were different then. The whole, <clears throat> the whole culture of entrepreneurship did not exist at that time. Um, people who started companies on their own were viewed as um, risk takers. Maybe they should really just go get a job. <laughs> Uh, but Gordon and Jerry and I had graduated from uh, college. We had our first jobs and it, it turned out that we were looking for something a little more exciting in our lives. And uh, so we started talking about the possibility of starting a business together, hmm. a radical idea. And we would meet occasionally just, you know, okay, today we're going to talk about starting a business together. You know, it would be like that. We, we did th a lot of things together. And then at one of those meetings, which was at uh, lunchtime in a little restaurant in Seattle, um, the waiter served us uh, coffee after the meal, espresso to be exact, which we had never been served in a restaurant in Seattle before. That's why we said, yeah, we'll, we'd like to try espresso. And uh, we obviously had had espresso elsewhere like in Europe, but not in Seattle. And, the uh, guy bought the uh, waiter, bought the coffee to the table. We took a sip and it just was terrible. You know, it was just awful stuff. Yeah. And um, so, you know, we kept talking. And instead of talking about other ideas, we started talking about coffee. You know, well, does Seattle have to put up with this? You know, do we have to keep drinking bad coffee? And then we went into, you know, what any good entrepreneur would do today. We started doing a little research. Mm. You know, the go with your gut, uh, or as Nike says, just do it. That's not much of a business strategy. <laughs> uh, so we did the research. And uh, uh, during as the research progressed, it became clearer and clearer to us, this might work. We could roast coffee, <clears throat> uh, roast green coffee, and uh, operate coffee bean stores. And we opened the first one in the central market of Seattle. It's called the Pike Place Market. It's still there. Wow. And, and I think what fascinates me as well is, so, and correct me if I'm wrong, but all three co-founders, um, none of you had, had experience in coffee beforehand, right? Like, I mean, from a business perspective or, or did you? Yes. Well, you know, 
with a lot of startups. Uh, I, I, I work with startup entrepreneurs uh, and have for many years. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm actually quite current on the startup scene. And um, the, there's always something missing <clears throat> with every startup. You know, the, <clears throat> the person knows sales or the person knows um, the product or the service really well but there's something missing. It's always something missing. And for us, believe it or not, what was missing was deep knowledge of coffee. Um, as it turned out, we could cover a lot of the other uh, areas very nicely, although we didn't know that on day one, but it turned out that way. And I, I was a good startup person, um, uh, very outwardly oriented toward uh, people, which made me good at uh, the early stage of human resources and uh, building customer base. Gordon Bowker, a fabulous marketer. He went on to a career in helping position companies. Mm -hmm. And um, Jerry Baldwin evolved into a terrific leader and an excellent financial person, uh, like a CFO. And um, that was a big surprise to him and to us too. <laughs> so those, <clears throat> we covered a lot of areas, but we didn't know a hell of a lot about coffee. Mm. Yeah, and, and the other interesting thing, and, and I'm starting to pick this up as a, as a pattern a bit more from a lot of the founders I've been talking to. To give you an example, uh, I had a chat with Mark Randolph, the, the past or former CEO of, of uh, Netflix and who co-founded the business. But he said the exact same thing. You know, he would go into a car and, and you know, with, with, um, with the current CEO and, and they would just, brainstorm ideas all the time, you know, and, mm -hmm. and from that, a lot of like terrible ideas emerged, but one of those ideas turned out to be Netflix. And that's kind of what led them to start the business together. So it's interesting how your environment has impacted you so positively, right? Yeah, we rejected a lot of ideas because we discovered through preliminary research that they were just terrible ideas or that they were not right for us because we just didn't have what it would take to be successful in that area. And but um, the, uh, an enormous break happened during the research, mm -hmm. which is uh, I started doing uh, fairly deep research on coffee companies that existed at that time in 1971 in the U.S. <clears throat> and there were hardly any that were roasting high quality coffee in what we would call a gourmet company today. Yeah. Um, there were hardly any. Uh, I couldn't find very many. The, but there was one in San Francisco that looked pretty promising. It's actually in Berkeley, um, across from San Francisco. And that was Pete's Coffee. So I called them. This is a kind of a rash thing for a 26-year-old to do. You know, so I, I called him. And the guy who owned the company took the call. His yeah. name was Alfred Pete. And uh, unbeknownst to me, I was talking to the man who knew more about coffee uh, from growing to roasting to selling than anybody in the, in the country. <laughs> I, I didn't know that. So, you know, I'm, I explained who I am and what my friends and I are thinking about doing. And he said he had a, a wonderful Dutch accent. Um, you know, he said, Zev, you know, I think you should come down here to San Francisco and uh, uh, come take a look at what I'm doing. I'll show you. You know, that, that's a pretty nice offer. So I got in my car and went there. <laughs> it you know, took a long time. Uh, and when I got there, he, uh, I, I visited, uh, he had two stores. I visited one of them. Um, it's a legendary store in Berkeley, uh, the, the original Pete's store. It's big. It was full of customers. 
um, that impressed me. Um, and there were, I don't know, six or seven people working behind the counter. And what they were doing was, uh, was selling um, coffee beans and fine teas. And then there was a little coffee brewing center in the front. Uh, and then Mr. Pete, after a while, took me over to his uh, coffee roasting facility, which wasn't very far away. It was small. And we sat and talked about coffee. I mean, he, he was, it was like being my great uncle. You know, and, you know, he was about 20 years older than me. And I mean, he must have been, he must have been smiling inside, you know, thinking, what, what's this, what is this kid doing here? You know, but we got along quite well. And then he's, uh, you know, it was getting be five, six o'clock in the evening. And uh, he said, well, let's, let's go get some wine and something to eat. Mm. And at that point, <laughs> I thought my brain was going to explode. And so we, we did. And, um, by the end of, um, you know, the wine and the hors d'oeuvres, um, he had offered to be a mentor to me and to Gordon and Jerry. And um, that's how we accidentally solved the biggest problem we had, which is we didn't know very much about coffee. And he was a mentor in kind of intensely for a couple of years. Wow. That's very interesting, too, in, in terms of seeking mentorship. And I know that you mentor a lot of startups as well. Um, I'm curious, like in the, in the early days, how, how crucial that is, especially to a founding team, you know, as they start building the ideas, having not just like, a, you know, a quality mentor, but someone who can really, you know, roll up their sleeves and provide strategic help and advice to, 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 to companies just to get them off the ground. Well, in the case of Mr. Pete, he was providing content. You know, he was providing the information that we needed about coffee and sources for good right. green coffee, sources for our big commercial coffee roaster. Mm -hmm. um, uh, he helped uh, uh, us do a very good job of roasting from the beginning. I mean, there were some things that we did actually a little better than he did, but, but n not very many. <laughs> um, and... Uh, it was absolutely pivotal. Now, today, some of the people that I work with, um, uh, you know, 26-year-olds uh, entrepreneurs like I was, um, sometimes what's missing is uh, the ability to do a, to finesse the meetings uh, with uh, prospective investors. Mm. And um, <laughs> it's an area, I mean, I've actually... Uh, had held full dress rehearsals with some entrepreneurs because they were too confident that they could do it when I, when I knew they couldn't. Mm -hmm. um, uh, or maybe it's preparing the materials. Maybe, uh, for instance, uh, a great weakness that uh, mentors uh, help with today is uh, financial forecasting. Yeah. Yeah. On the finance side, for sure. Yeah. We, we definitely yeah. do that a lot on the public markets as well. Um, so, so, you know, obviously you have this mentor at this point, but in Seattle, like even when you guys went for lunch, you know, and, and offering an espresso was like culturally just what the hell are you doing kind of yeah. moment. Um, how did you get past that? Cause it was a pain point that you three discovered in your market research. What were you asking people? Like, how were you basically getting a consensus that Seattle and, and broadly speaking, the, the States needed a coffee chain like Starbucks? Um, let's, um, uh, address that in a second. The kind of store that we were setting up was a coffee bean store. It wasn't a coffee bar. Mm -hmm. Starbucks didn't have coffee bars for its first 10 years. Um, 
but I think the assurance that it would work in Seattle came from seeing <clears throat> what Mr. Pete had achieved <clears throat> in uh, Berkeley, uh, also in Palo Alto. He had two stores at that time. By the way, Pete's Coffee is now a big chain. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, um, it was important to get that validation that it, that it would work. I mean, the, the difference between the people that I saw in his stores in California and the people that I see on, saw on the street in Seattle, they were, it's not like we were different animals. you know. Uh, and at that time, there was another thing going on. It was uh, now called the Gourmet Revolution. Um, started in late, 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 late 60s, around 1970. Um, suddenly, consumers were just not satisfied with the food in supermarkets. You know, a certain segment of educated consumers, and uh, and we were among those consumers, the three the three young guys. You know, we, we um, so we 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 suspected, almost on a subliminal level, I think that our push with um, <clears throat> gourmet coffee would uh, be a good match with the gourmet revolution, hmm. and it was. That's exactly what happened. We didn't start the revolution, <laughs> but it certainly benefited us. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. And, and and did you ever like, were you guys referencing basically the Italian baristas? And I, I think I read that somewhere, but was that the kind of conceptualization that you, you saw it basically there and you wanted to get that quality type? Of no, that came uh, actually, George, that came later. Uh, and uh, let's talk about that. Yeah. Um, the, the founders of Starbucks were interested in uh, buying the best quality uh, green coffee we could get our hands on. Uh, roasting it really well and then selling it fresh, like within a few days, right? In our stores, and the way we sold it was in uh, beans, you know, or we we would grind it for you too. You yeah. would take it home or to your office and brew it there. Mm -hmm. We also sold home brewing equipment. Interesting. Um, the coffee bar revolution came up in the early '80s for Starbucks. Uh, by the early 80s, there were a few coffee carts in Seattle, outdoor, um, uh, basically an outdoor coffee bar. And we were actually supplying some of them as a wholesaler. We had lots of wholesale customers. Mm. And uh, we didn't want to compete with them because they were our customers, of course. Um, and, um, but eventually, uh, uh, the original founders sold the company to a wonderful guy who was working for the company at that time. It's Howard Schultz, a now legendary entrepreneur. Wow. Um, and at the time, he was uh, vice president for sales and marketing of Starbucks. He is the person who, on a trip to Europe, his first trip to Europe for, for the company, uh, he was going to a trade show in Milan. He got off the plane, and there's espresso at the airport. You know, he took the train into town. There's espresso at the train station. He got to his hotel. There's an espresso bar in the lobby. And, he, you know, he couldn't, he, he could not avoid the fact that Italians didn't buy beans. They bought brewed coffee. So when he came back to Seattle, as he was still vice president for sales and marketing, he approached the founders and said, uh, we could be uh, a legendary, more profitable company if we, um, moved into uh, opening coffee bars. And there were some experiments made, uh, you know, actually opening coffee bars. And then uh, coincidentally, uh, Howard Schultz put together an investment group, approached the founders and was able to buy the company. Mm -hmm. It just turned out that everybody 
was everybody's interests were well served in that transaction. Yeah. And, um, and then he immediately began changing the company. First, he changed the color of the logo from brown to green, with a legendary green uh, circle. Right. And, um, and then he changed the company from coffee beans to coffee bars, mm-hmm. coffee beverages. And uh, it was an enormously successful t- uh, transition. It worked from the beginning. What would you say was the, I mean, because you spent, for people who don't know, you spent 10 years as a director and, and the founding vice president. In those, in those 10 years or, or that decade, uh, maybe the first question is like, what was that real tipping point? I mean, you open your first store in Seattle, but then I think you end up opening a couple more just in, in, in that one. Uh, mm-hmm. region. So I'm curious, like, when did you guys start feeling a bit of momentum? Like this is actually starting to pick up. I think it, it happened actually fairly early, George, um, because each store that we opened was profitable. Mm. You know, we had good financial information, not not from a computer. There were no computers, um, but um, I really? wish there. How I wish there had been. Um, the uh, you know when you when you open uh, the first store, it's profitable. Second store is profitable. Third store is profitable. You start to think, oh my god. this is really working. Then we had people starting to approach us, mostly restaurant owners saying, well, we'd be interested in selling your coffee and featuring it, Hmm. Uh, you know, for good business reasons. Customers are asking for better coffee. uh, It's more profitable, et cetera. Um, So by the, you know, within six or seven years, we had 300 wholesale customers. So that helped a lot. We only had, uh, by the end of the 70s, six stores. It was a small company still. It was only in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And it did not own a coffee bar. Uh, but boy, was it a successful company. I mean, uh, personally, I would say we knew we were onto something when we all had new cars on leases. <laughs> That's, had the for, for us, that was a telltale sign. <laughs> hilarious. Well, it's also interesting too, because so I, I mean, I've been in Chicago for eight months, right? I just moved to the States. And as soon as I moved here, I don't know if you saw, but they, they also opened the, um, I mean, this is the first time I ever saw it, but it was the, uh, the roast, the, the roastery. Oh yeah. Um, and I know isn't there's that one. A, the isn't that, isn't that a fascinating thing? So the, the Starbucks, it's called Starbucks Reserve Roastery. Yeah. There's one in New York. There's one in Tokyo, a famous one, one in Milan. <clears throat> These are uh, billboard operations. They're designed to, uh, it's a marketing ploy. Right, right. Now, re- remember, I am an observer of the company now. I'm, I, uh, you know, I don't sit in the, in the inner sanctum and make decisions about things like this. I'm just an observer. Right. Um, but my observation is that these stores can't possibly be making any money because they're staffed so heavily. Yeah. And, uh, and they're yeah. so lavishly, uh, created and they're just it's the you know Disneyland of coffee um, <laughs> and um, and the quality of everything they sell is so high and the quality of the information they give their uh, customers is so uh, perfect I mean you can ask anybody in the store anything and they'll tell you about it and, and, and it, they'll be right um, the um, to me the it clearly is a way of building um, the Starbucks brand and the new newer reserve brand. Exactly. There's two brands there. And um, it's, I think it works pretty well. Uh, I, they have decided now not to open any more of these reserve roasteries. Mm-hmm. I think the, the goal has been achieved. Um, 
I knew that the reserve program was just a fabulous innovation. When I went to the one near me, I live about a mile from the first one, um, and I realized that most of the customers were from other countries, <laughs> especially Asia. It was really interesting. And they're all taking pictures, some of them with big professional equipment, not just telephones. And they're being you know, encouraged to do it. Nobody was stopping them from taking pictures of little detail of how the espresso machine was installed or the, the wall decorations or the custom furniture. Go ahead, make yourself happy. Right. Of course, what was going on, and the, I'm sure that it was uh, planned, is that um, those, <clears throat> those pictures, many of those photographs, were instantly displayed around the world on social media, instantly. Hmm. So, you know, if, to open one of these places must cost between 10 and $15 million, and they, they aren't very profitable. Uh, why would you do that? Well, how about if you could have, uh, you know, 10,000 images published every day <laughs> in markets where you have retail stores? <laughs> like, you know, it, it's just a great strategy, as it turns out. Yeah, it almost felt like, a, to your point, like a coffee museum. I mean, the, the first time I walked in, it also reminded me a bit of an Apple store. You know where you walk in and you're kind of like dazzled by everything. And, you know, as someone who loves coffee, I mean, my podcast is, is called Let's Grab Coffee. So, uh, but you walk in and, and, and I brought this point up because it kind of goes back to the original concept, right? Because now they also sell premium beans at, at the store. It's not just like ready-made coffee. So, I don't know. It's, got, it's got getting back that vintage flavor a little bit. Don't yeah, you? and in some countries, mostly, I'm thinking of the United States now, Starbucks is a very prominent player in supermarket shelves. Mm. You can go to the, uh, the you know, packages. Yeah. They don't sell that much coffee in their in their own in their own coffee bars. Mm. You can tell they don't by the way it's placed for sale. It's sort of over there in the corner, you know. <laughs> uh, but um, in supermarkets, they're prominent. It's a big business. Yeah, and, and and you brought up something really important. Like when people go in, they take pictures. Now you have ten thousand whatever pictures around the world. When you guys were starting this, from a marketing, from a scalability perspective, it must have been so difficult, one, to market this, but also to get the information you needed, to your point. Like now, you know, just accessing Google, you can just get anything within seconds. And it's verified, you know, you have the links to the authors. What, what were you, I mean, what were you relying on back then uh, to build the business? Um, let's see, a couple of issues there. One is we actually had a pretty good grounding in coffee by the time we opened from our mentor, Alfred P. Gotcha. So we actually did know quite a bit about coffee by the time we opened. It was about six or eight months from the, you know, the idea to the opening. Um, and we, of course, acquired a great deal more knowledge over the next few years, but it was, it was adequate. Hmm. And our policy was to engage as heavily as possible with every customer we could. Um, so if you walked in the door of our first store in, you know, in March of 1971, um, you would um, have been greeted. Somebody from behind the counter would say, oh, hi, we'll be, come, ha take a look. You know, <laughs> we'll be with you soon. Uh, and then when it was your turn to, uh, you know, come to the counter and talk to one of the salespeople, oh, my gosh, uh, you'd get a really great download about coffee. You'd be asked how you brew coffee and, you know, is there anything missing in your life with coffee? And have you been to Europe and seen what goes on over there? And uh, big engagement. And the next thing you know, you're you're sniffing um, uh, a nice uh, shovel full of fresh roasted French roast, and 
And then before you know it, you've purchased your first half pound of Starbucks coffee. Um, this, this was our MO. We were educating everyone. And uh, it was uh, an important part uh, of the business. And I see that in like little independent coffee bars today, what yeah. are called third wave coffee bars. Yeah. yeah. You know, the, the definition of a third wave coffee bar is they have, you know, six ways to make your coffee and the barista for sure has really beautiful tattoos. Um, and yeah, typically, yeah, exactly. and they also, uh, there's another char characteristic of third wave coffee bars. <clears throat> they prefer light roasts. Mm. Um, and so w when you go into one of the, uh, a third wave coffee bar, and I do this all, all over the world, at least I did until COVID, um, the, um, and you ask a question, my gosh, it's just like going into Starbucks in 1971. You know, you just get this fantastic download of information about how many bars of pressure in the espresso machine and why they roast the way they do. And I mean, you just, one question and you get the, the torrent. Uh, and it's so wonderful. I just love seeing that. And that still happens in Starbucks in spite of their um, very high volume and the, you know, the, the, the reputation of the company as being an overbearing giant corporation mm. on the street level. When you walk into a store, if you're talking to one of their baristas and you ask them a technical question about coffee, you're probably going to get the right answer. Yeah. I don't know how they do that. Yeah. You know, there's 30,000 stores, more than 30,000 stores in the world under one brand. It's amazing. Well, well, that's what's incredible about about the consistency of the culture. And and uh, one thing I'd add to that too is on a customer perspective, like from a store level, I used to go to the same one in Toronto every single morning, and literally every single barista all knew me. Like, and it's not just hey, George, you know, just like a first name basis because you're a recurring customer, but we knew each other's stories, like where we, you know, where we were born, where where we're traveling next year. Like, it was a bit of a deeper level than I felt with other uh, other coffee places. Right? I once I. I once uh, observed an independent coffee bar owner. It was a tiny little coffee bar in Seattle. <clears throat> the guy in front of me in line uh, ordered a drink and then said he'd like to work for her. He'd like to be a barista in her coffee bar. And she did something that just made my jaw drop. She said, what's your phone number? And he told her. And she said, what was your previous phone number? And he just stopped. He said, I can't remember. He said, she said, well, I need people who can remember names and faces and stories. <laughs> and she blew him off. And, <laughs> uh, and I thought, that's how you operate a coffee business. You know, you, you'd have to engage with your customers just the way you described, George. Yeah. I mean, one thought that comes up too, if, because, because you love these independent coffee stories, if you're ever in Alaska, I know this is going to sound random, but if you're ever in Alaska, I went to one called Side Street Espresso. Uh, mm -hmm. The guy who owns it actually is George as well. Uh, he has a phenomenal story. But one of the cool things he does, he also uh, draws, right? Like a lot of the political activist kind of uh, mm -hmm. caricatures. And he sells this like massive book uh, in the store and he'll come talk to you about it. And anyway, like I, I just, I love that, that homey feeling that you get when you walk into those kind of stores. You know what I mean? Wearing suspenders. Like that's what I imagine, you know, someone who's Yeah, like, well, there's a tremendous amount of passion in the coffee business. Um, I mean- Let's see, let me give you an example of mine. I was in um, uh, Singapore to give a presentation at an entrepreneurship conference. Uh, this is about th three and a half years ago. And so I'm done you know, with the two days of work at the conference. 
now it's time to go exploring and to be a tourist, which I did for another three days. So uh, I went into Google and said, third wave coffee bars, please. And uh, up they all came on my map. And um, so I went off to find one that looked that I had, you know, I also looked at their web pages uh, or Facebook pages or wherever they were. And then I went off to find this one. I couldn't find it. I took, you know, I'd, I'd walked about a half a mile into another neighborhood and uh, there were big apartment buildings and clusters. And so finally I asked somebody who looked like they uh, spoke uh, English and they said, oh, it's around the back of that building. So I go around the back of this apartment building and there on the ground level, completely out of view of everyone is a third wave coffee bar with a roasteria, you know, a, a roasting machine right next door. Beautiful setup, you know, glass wall dividing the bar from the uh, roasting plant. And I go in and there's the hardcore customers, you know, uh, Singaporeans and expats standing at a window coffee bar, sipping really interesting looking drinks. And I walk up to the bar and, I, and just ask one of, you know, a sort of a bleak question about coffee. Um, you know, which blend are you, are you using in your espresso machine today? Something like that. And I get this download from, from this woman who is just so involved with coffee. And I thought, I'm in the basement of an apartment building in Singapore listening to this person go off about coffee. I just couldn't believe it. It was so wonderful. And that's what happens all over the world. Well, that, that's crazy, too. Did you end up knowing that you were one of the co-founders of Starbucks? I mean, that, that's a... Uh, intimidating question <laughs> from from like the well uh, you know actually i uh, i rarely tell people that that don't know it already because um it changes the conversation completely true. yeah they might they you might know, be you know also there's another confusing factor which is the in addition to changing the conversation to being about me instead of about them yeah they also get a misconception of me uh, they think I must have arrived on my own jet or something, you know, and uh, and so that that's that's very counterproductive. So no, I don't tell. Sometimes they know. They're, yeah, they, maybe they saw a presentation or. Um... So you know, these people. There are still people who are starting coffee bars and also coffee roasting companies. There are still entrepreneurs in in this field. Yeah, I, I was I was watching a CNBC Make It segment recently. I just, I'm blanking on the name. It's a blue truck. It's very famous around California, around the States. Uh, blue bottle? Blue bottle. That's it. Uh, I used to go to, uh, to it in Toronto, but they were talking about how, you know, it's, uh, I mean, the market cap of this company is like, I think 700 million or close to something like that. Well, it, was, it was acquired. So yeah, it's a real market cap. <laughs> exactly. But it, it's just, it's crazy how they were talking about the, the next wave of, of coffee where it's more expensive because it's freshly brewed, uh, brewed, sorry, right then and there. So it's kind of entering in that next space. Um, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, like what are you seeing now as an emerging trend within coffee? Well, the biggest trend in the last couple of years is cold brew coffee. Yeah. Uh, so coffee is usually made with hot water. Espresso is made with hot water under pressure. Mm. You know, quite a few bars of pressure. Um, and uh, cold brew is completely different. Cold brew is made, if you can imagine, a vat of room temperature water and a measured amount of ground coffee. It sits in that vat, kind of stews, and all the flavor you know, is taken out of the coffee. It takes about 12 hours, typically. 
and then it's drained, and then it's served over ice, or sometimes it's in, uh, infused with uh, a nitrogen gas, which makes it into a slushy, icy drink. Great. Well, cold brew is a huge success. You know, it started modestly, and then the big coffee bar chains got into it, making cold brew, and now it's, it's taken off. Well, the effect of cold brew coffee on the coffee industry isn't written about very much, but it's really powerful, George. It's a new type of product that attracts a new type of audience. It, uh, mm. the, the people who buy cold brew coffee, you know, half of them at least, are under 30. Uh, some of them are under 20. And it's a, a substitute. It competes very nicely with uh, soda. Very nicely. It's a nice, refreshing drink. It's cold. It's delicious. Good you can some. add a little cream or milk to it, and then it turns into something like a coffee milkshake, and everybody's happy. Well, I described to you how, how it's made. It's made in, in a vat, mm -hmm. and then you, you know, store it in a big urn. Great. So a customer comes in and orders an espresso. Well, it takes a couple minutes to make it, right? Yeah. Customer... Next customer orders uh, a cold brew coffee. It takes about 15 seconds <laughs> to put the ice in the cup and serve it. Yeah. So this is, so you would think that it would be very inexpensive because it's so fast and uh, saves so much labor. It's not, it's a premium product. So it's actually very profitable. So the customer is happy because they have this new wonderful product that's delicious and the coffee bar owners are fantastically happy because they have a new source of profit yeah that, that's great that is the biggest change in the industry yeah the the, the different types of coffees for sure um it, it's funny because you know as i was telling you i mean i was born in lebanon but lived in the middle east and coffee to us is such a social thing right i mean even if you oh, yeah. Right, the cups are. I, I have experienced that. It's a marvelous thing. Arab it, hospitality around coffee. Yeah, and I know you. You, you spoke in, in Kuwait, and we were talking about that as well. And you know, like dates are offered next to the coffee. We sit in a circle. Mm -hmm. It's a very communal thing for us. Like it's not. It, whereas when I came to to Canada or or the states, you know, people typically will get the the, the long form, like a, a tall black or whatever the case is, and kind of drink it at their desk. It's more individualistic versus at least from what i experienced versus what, what were you used to back home um but, but I'm well george you know uh, uh, you, you mentioned kuwait city um in the gulf region kuwait is really exceptional it is uh, intensely interested in coffee <laughs> and um the independent coffee bar industry and also the franchises are all there um and uh with uh, uh wonderful young man who uh, was willing to do this with me. Uh, I went to uh, 24 coffee bars in two hours. Uh, I didn't get coffee in all of them, but I visited them and talked with people. And it is so different and, uh, than the US. I went at 10 in the morning, right? That's when coffee bars are busy, not in Kuwait. In Kuwait, they're busy in the evening. Yeah. Because they're social centers. Alcohol is not consumed very often there. And as a result, if you're 25 years old and interested in dating, and there are a lot of restrictions on dating still, <clears throat> then you go to coffee bars. You put on your best clothes and a little bit of attitude, and you go visit your, your, your friends at coffee bars. And so they're jammed in the evening, absolutely jammed. 
it's it's really fun to experience. Yeah, it, that, that's a really good point. Um, and you highlighted a bit of that uh, before. But in terms of like the, the cross-cultural management, right, in business, it's, it's, so, it's so important to understand the differences in culture, especially if you're going to be opening. Um, I, I was reading once, um, uh, or I, I guess listened to an interview with, with Howard Schultz as well, talking about when they first started streamlining or scaling uh, coffee across the states, because not everybody loved coffee, right? Especially different, different groups uh, or, uh, from cultures or races. Like it wasn't loved the same way by, by the masses. So getting over that hump, but also customizing the coffee so that it suits you know, th- different groups and ethnicities uh, across the states was, was a very important part of, of gaining that, that, that momentum. Yeah, it is. And, um, but remember, the greatest customization that you can do in a country is to have uh, bilingual uh, baristas. You know, they speak if the person language. behind the counter looks like you and speaks your language, I'd say the company has adapted. Um, and what uh, I've seen Starbucks do, for instance, I was in a Starbucks in Hyderabad, India, and um, the, on the menu was a, one of those giant drinks with whipped cream on top, but, um, but this one had uh, something with saffron in it. And believe me, you cannot get a saffron-laced drink in the United States, but you can in India, and there's a very good reason for that. It's a subtle, and they feature it with photographs and words, and it's, it's just a way of letting the people uh, in Hyderabad know that Starbucks is thinking about them and their, the difference between them and the United States, and they want to be helpful. They right. do that all over the world, but it's very subtle. Mm. Yeah. I mean, McDonald's does that with their signature, uh, like, you know, burger in each. Um, in, yeah. in each well, you know, it's very interesting in that, uh, that description I gave you of the uh, out of the way third wave coffee bar in Singapore. That, you know, the basement of an apartment building, uh, <laughs> that coffee bar could have been plunked in Seattle and done very well. Mm. There was nothing about it except the staff that looked to me like it was Singapore. It was very interesting to me. It was just, this is, um, the coffee bar industry is largely uh, international and that a person from Toronto can walk into a, you know, a coffee bar in Kuala Lumpur and be pretty happy. You know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. They won't feel like a foreigner. It, it's almost, it has that universal co- uh, context in that sense, right? Which, which very few things do. Um, but, but I'm also curious when you, when you were starting out, cause you, you were focused more on, on, uh, on offering the, you know, the, the roasted beans as an example, where, 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 from which country did you look to source them from? Well, we had, um, um, let's see, there were 20 bins in each of our stores, mm. um, underneath the counter. And let's see, of those 20 bins, they'd say five were blends of coffee. Okay. Two were different roasts, uh, a dark roast and then a very dark roast. So those are not national origin coffees. But the other bins, you know, say 10 other bins, those were from around the world, Kenya, Colombia, and many other countries. And there's a whole Central America. There is a, a, an, a whole industry of middlemen and brokers and sometimes direct sales between coffee growers and coffee roasters. Um, it is 
evolved over the last uh, 30, 40 years. It's, it's been fine-tuned now. There are many, for instance, there are many coffee roasting companies that um, have direct relationships with certain growers, say, in Central America. They have cultivated these relationships and, you know, so that when this particular little estate is ready to sell, they can sell directly to a company, say, in Houston or in uh, London. Um, and that's good for the coffee company. It's also very good for the grower because they get a much higher price than going through um, the middlemen. Mm. Um, it is a little risky for the coffee companies, surprisingly, because it's an agricultural product. And just because four years out of five, that estate has really fabulous coffee, in one year, they might not. Might be a bad growing year. <laughs> so then that, that, that creates problems. So, but yeah, uh, sourcing coffee is a very important part of it. Um, but, um, you know, anybody listening to this podcast who wanted to open a coffee bar could, would probably immediately recognize that there are many ways um, for them, many roasters who would um, be happy to serve them and uh, uh, be their wholesale supplier and uh, could provide them with a wide array of uh, uh, different varieties of coffee. It's, it's, it's really reached a, a very high level of differentiation now. What's your favorite? Like, did you have a favorite? Well, you know, I, I, when I go into a coffee bar or at home, yeah. uh, like this morning, um, I um, almost always have a, a double espresso, okay. espresso doppio. And that's almost always a blend. Uh, the, um, that's, that's just me. Uh, sometimes I'll take the time to, um, you know, uh, buy uh, several samples of coffee and line them up on the counter like uh, I used to do when I was inside the coffee industry and do a, a comparative blind tasting. That's very interesting to do, actually. And um, Are you guessing the roast, like from which country or the blend? Is that what you're trying to do? Uh, well, for instance, what I might do is uh, buy a really fine Costa Rican coffee from four different roasters in the Seattle area. I see. And then compare them. Mm. That's one thing. Yeah. Or I maybe on another day, I might uh, compare a really good Colombian with a good Kenyan coffee with, your, with a good coffee from Indonesia, just to see, you know, the, some of the differences. There are many ways to taste coffee. It's not unlike tasting wine. It's a lot of fun to do. True. And, and honestly, like a buddy, I mean, there are a lot of coffee connoisseurs. Like it's, it's one of those things, as you point out, like wine, like whiskey, like cigars, where it has a community around it for those who really love it. I mean, above and beyond, you know, the Frappuccinos and whatever the... Um, the, the yeah, the, it's amazing what a wide range of people can be served by the industry. You know, <laughs> exactly. the teenagers with Frappuccinos and... Uh, Cinnamon lattes. Well, and well, 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 wealthy, highly educated couples with their, uh, you know, $50 a pound uh, coffee from Indonesia. Uh, you know, everybody's happy. <laughs> It, it serves you know, some. one one of the things that you asked about early on was, uh, you know, how we initially interested customers. And there's something we haven't talked about, and it's probably because it's not talked about much in the coffee industry, which is coffee has caffeine in it, hmm. unless it's decaffeinated. Of and well, you know, caffeine gives you a, a nice lift, and um, it's legal. <laughs> so it. It is a factor in um, uh, return sales, in uh, maintaining customers' interests. Um, 
caffeine is uh, definitely causes people to keep buying coffee. It's the lift is that you get in your brain is so wonderful. For sure. Unless you overdo it, of course, then you have to slow down. But um, or you build the tolerance. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it's it's quite interesting. Well, on that point, because um, I've well, it's, you know it's not unlike uh, the sort of addictive quality of cell phones. True. Wow, you know, it's, it's really interesting to watch a person uh, with a cell phone. Uh, it's hard to tell whether the phone's in charge or the person's in charge sometimes. Yeah, uh, it, it's so involving. And I think that's a factor that nobody, you know, that, very, not, that isn't often mentioned in um, the consumer love of cell phone apps and cell phones. Yeah, you you get a hit of dopamine for sure. Um, oh, instant gratification. Yeah, yeah, and and it's funny with coffee. Because I remember like over the years, you know, one year they'd say it's healthy, one year they say <laughs> much of it is dehydrated. Yeah, right in the middle of the 1970s, the Surgeon General of the United States came out <laughs> saying that coffee was risky stuff. Yeah, like, we, how did you guys we were so mad. <laughs> Did that ever affect you guys? I mean, obviously, Starbucks has, has went on to do very, very, very well. But I'm just curious, like every year there, there seemed to be a report and it was never consistent, you know? I would say that now with the ubiquitous presence of coffee in most countries, that uh, it would be very hard for a report to have any effect. Mm. I and, think we're beyond that now. And switching just sides, because I know we... We have about uh, 10 minutes. I just want to hit on this topic. So you, after a decade uh, of being with Starbucks and now you're, you know, you're talking to someone like Howard as an example and, and things are evolving. What, what, what led to the decision of you wanting to step away and, and pursue other things? Oh, um, I'm, I'm a startup guy. Hmm. I know that about myself and I've known it for a long time. I am not a person who can be in a large organization and be effective. How did, how did you build that self-awareness, Steph, just on that point? Um, how did I build that soft, self-awareness? Um, well, I, I built it for, with my first company, with Starbucks Coffee Company. So by, the time, by the time I exited after 10 years, um, you know, we had several, two, more than 200 employees and a pretty complex operation, in a local operation in Seattle, Washington. That, I, I could tell that I, I just wasn't functioning at a level that would be that useful to the company. I wanted to start new divisions, right. and, um, which I did, by the way. Uh, and then as soon as I left the company, I started a little business of my own. You know, so the, um, yeah, I'm a startup guy. And uh, people sometimes say, gee, Sam, you must feel terrible about getting out so early now that Starbucks has a market cap, that, uh, you know, of billions of dollars. And mm -hmm. the, the answer is I don't. Uh, I'm pretty happy about what's happened to me and what's happened to Starbucks. Um, but I could never have done that. I'm, uh, I'm an early stage guy. I have a combination of skills that's very useful um, when companies are first forming. And it's totally useless once they're, uh, you know, get to 200 employees and uh, a higher level of complexity. I just can't do that. Yeah, I mean, as part of your mentorship too, and, and thank you for providing that context. What, how do you how do you help founders get over that ego hump? You know, because a lot of them think that, you know, they're the CEO from day one to the time they IPO or exit. <laughs> In many cases, yeah, yeah. One of the things I, I just find very amusing is is 
I mean, I shouldn't, and I don't laugh at anybody because of this, but is to get a card from a person who is trying to start a company. They're the only uh, person involved in the company and they're, and the, at the bottom of their email, it says CEO. Mm. Uh, yeah, that's a little stretch. CEO yeah. of what? Uh, the, uh, I work with a lot of startup entrepreneurs and I, I love to do it. The ego is sometimes a part of it. You know, that we're, they're, they're quite sure uh, that they are the center of the universe. But not that often, George. Um, usually I find that um, most startup entrepreneurs uh, are looking over their shoulder. They're a little nervous that they're going to make a mistake that'll be fatal. Mm. And so it tends to make them, the majority of entrepreneurs are quite open. Um, and as a mentor, you know, what I do is I ask questions. I don't tell anybody what to do. Uh, I just ask questions because I want to make sure that they know the answers. Like, uh, do you have a forecast? Yes, I do. Um, uh, can you show it to me? Oh, sure. I'll put it up on the screen for you. Mm. Uh, and you look at the forecast and you go to the first number and, uh, you know, they say, okay, I see, I see your sales continue to grow in, in your forecast. Of course, that's very healthy. You know, you, you expect to grow. I understand that. Um, so in year three, when you're doing a $2.5 million, what percentage of the market is that? Almost nobody can answer that question. And that's where the, that's how a, a, a mentor works. You just keep asking questions so you can help them see what they don't know. Right. And it, for instance, the, the reason that question, that particular question, what percentage of the market do you think that is, is so important is that um, they might be projecting that they're going to have the entire market at that volume. <laughs> which is insanity you know they're not going to have the entire market um yeah or they or what also happens is they might be such an insignificant part of the market that you wonder why they're bothering um as, but you just as a mentor you keep asking questions um i love to do that i think it's so helpful to people and on on, on just on you know continuing on that topic um i'm a founder of a startup i approach you we have our first coffee meeting what are the three traits that you're looking for from me as a CEO of, let's say, a 10-person company that makes you really, really excited to mentor the startup? Uh, well, first, I would try to divine whether you have a recognition in your brain uh, that other people know things that you don't know. Hmm. For instance, you've got, um, you've hired a, a bookkeeper to help with your company. He or she is you know, not a, not a CFO, but they're operating the books of your company. Um, are, and then I would want to see what kind of information you have. Has your book created a dashboard for you so you can see how things are going week to week? Uh, and, you know, you can just penetrate the, those kinds of uh, uh, issues. Um, so that, that's one. Are you open to other people? Number two is, is the idea any good? You know, um, let me give you an example. Sometimes people will want to open a, uh, start a business that is a phone app that is actually in a very crowded area and uh, say something to do with pets, uh, dogs and cats. Um, man, you've got to differentiate yourself somehow because you've got a lot of competitors. So I would want to see if the idea holds water. Oh, another thing is, um, can you make money doing this? Is it going to be profitable? 
Yeah. Uh, when's it, you know, how kind of volume do you have to do to get profitable? Now, in the case of, say, a, uh, an app or a social platform, frequently it doesn't take that much volume to be profitable. Uh, so that, that's sometimes that, that's the case. Whereas if you're doing something that involves uh, building an assembly line somewhere, uh, that's going to be very capital intensive. Mm-hmm. So we want to know if it's a good idea. And then the third thing is the team. Um, who's on board here? <laughs> what are their backgrounds? Did you just hire your drinking buddies? Really? Is that what you did? Uh, or uh, did you actually have job descriptions and then go after people that would be really good at that? Um, a typical uh, team consists of um, friends or college roommates or you know that kind of thing. Um, and I'm working with one group uh, that's uh, in the Chicago area, actually. They're, it's a group of 18-year-olds. They've just graduated high school, and they have a pretty, pretty cool idea for a, a platform on the web. Um, they're, you know, they're little gen- they're geniuses. And, um, you know, their, um, their, their, their group is, is quite wonderful. And, but they, and they also understand what they need that they don't have. They're not very good at uh, uh, financial management, for example. Um, but they're going after it. And so it's, you know, those, those are the things that matter. Is it, is the business a good idea? Can it be profitable? Uh, who's on board? What kind of a team do you have? And ironically, these are the same things that investors want to know right away. Who's on board? Okay. <laughs> I mean, they always look at the before, even before you tell them the business you're in, they want to see the, 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 the CVs of the team. And yeah, uh, it's so important. You know, investors often say we're investing in people. Exactly. Yeah. Versus the product. Um, no, th- th- that's awesome. Um, and, and then just to wrap this up, Zeb, I want to be mindful of your time. Last question to you. If you were to go back to when you were first starting Starbucks with everything that you know now, what would you tell your 26, 27-year-old self? What a wonderful question. Um, the... Um, We did a lot of things right. We were really fortunate in that. Um, I would say that um, (laughs) there's nothing we can do about the fact that there weren't computers. Uh, You know, we did the best job we could with pen and pencil, right? Um, The the question of coffee bars is quite interesting. Uh, And also geographic expansion. We really, the three of us, never really thought beyond Seattle for the first seven years. Then we thought about it, but didn't do anything. <laughs> uh, we could have expanded to other cities. Uh, that's one thing that we could have done. Uh, and the other thing is um, the respect that we had for uh, uh, our wholesale customers who were selling coffee beverages already when we weren't. We gave coffee away. We brewed lots of coffee, but we gave it away in little sample cups because we wanted you to do buy um, a bag of gourmet coffee beans to take home. That was the big sale that we wanted. Um, could we have uh, opened, uh, installed coffee bars in our coffee bean stores? Yeah, I think we probably could have. Uh, and it probably would have uh, enabled the company to be even more profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, n- there were no coffee bar type operations under the Starbucks brand until the early 80s. So those are, those are some you know, things that 
But those have to do with marketing things. And in terms of the startup, I think we did a great job. We used money very wisely. Um, we stayed away from investors as long as we could and then sold them as little as we could. So by the end of the, when the company was sold uh, to the group led by Howard Schultz, it was overwhelmingly still in the hands of, of the investors, uh, which, you know, it's a pretty good long-term strategy for building personal wealth. Mm. Keep the equity. <laughs> yeah, defining moral of this whole story. Keep the equity. I appreciate it. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Dev, man. I really, really appreciate you being here. Um, and, and I have full confidence that everyone listening is going to take something super important away from this. So really, I appreciate okay. You're welcome, George. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.